well, as we gather on this wonderful, beautiful chili, but nonetheless beautiful, especially after yesterday. Yesterday was an appropriate Holy Saturday, I guess. And as we gather on this beautiful Easter morning, we come remembering the resurrection and the text that we have before us. And Mark and I discuss these texts, you know, early on, and we go through them and plan them out. But he gave me a real curveball here in Jonah chapter 2, because really our whole text for the resurrection in this chapter 2 of Jonah is verse 10. That's the resurrection text, if you will. And so this is what I have to deal with this morning. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There you go. Preach that. Preach that. (laughs) Um, Well, as we do, and we'll we'll make the most of it as we come to this glorious text in chapter 2 of Jonah. And by the way, may we all pray prayers like this if we find ourselves in the belly of a fish. I mean, what a, what a prayer to Jonah. I mean, give it to Jonah. He had his problems. But when he found himself in the darkness of a fish's belly, he really could pray. That's a beautiful prayer to pray. Um, well, as we come, of course, we know the story of Jonah, and we know we make the connections. We can see the connections between Jonah's story and that of Christ, but it's good for us to come again and to reflect on them. And so I want to approach this text with three pretty simple questions. One, what's he doing in the belly of a fish? Two, how does he get out of there? And three, what now? And we can think about this in terms of Jonah, and then we'll also think about it in terms of Christ. What is he doing in the belly of the earth. You know, it's like when Jesus approaches John the Baptist, you know, and John the Baptist says, basically, what are you doing here? You know, it's like, you you don't belong here. You don't belong going in that water. Uh, You should be putting me in that water. What are you doing here? Well, what's Jesus doing there? In the belly of the earth. How's he get out of there? And what now? And so using all the texts that we've looked at today, Our Old Testament reading was Jonah 2, our word of exhortation, the back end of 1 Corinthians 15. Our New Testament reading was Matthew's version of the story, the narrative of the resurrection. Um, So putting all these texts together and holding them all um, and and viewing, if you will, the whole story as a tapestry, uh, we we can answer these questions. What are you doing in the belly of a fish? How did you get out? And what now? So let's take the first question. What is Jonah doing here? I mean, if, if when we just pick up in the text, you know, if you didn't know the whole story and you just jumped into chapter 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Now, we just read that and we're like, yeah, we get it. But it would be a fair question to say, excuse me? <laughs> Where was he? Yeah, he's in the belly of the fish. Well, what's he doing in there? Well, you'll remember the story and what occurred. Jonah is there because of his sin and because of his rebellion. Jonah is commissioned to go to Nineveh and to preach the word of the Lord to these idolaters, these evildoers, these Gentiles. I mean, we know, if you know your history at all, you know the Assyrians were bad dudes. They were awful. And here Jonah has to go to them, to Gentiles, and and just awful Gentiles at that, and to 
call them to repent. And we know even after this, Jonah struggles with the idea of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians actually repenting. Jonah's not really keen on that. In fact, Jonah would like to see, kind of like, like the disciples, you know, fire come down from heaven. You know, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down on these cities? You know, that's kind of what Jonah wants to see. Fire come down from heaven on the Ninevites, not go and preach repentance to them with the idea that they might turn and be saved. And so frankly, Jonah doesn't want to do it. He does not want to obey the Lord. And so he decides, I'm out of here. I'm going to run to the far ends of the earth, to Tarshish, Spain. As, as far west as we know, and then you enter the Great Sea. I mean, who, who knows what's after there? But I'm at least heading as far west as I can go, going to run away as far as I can get. And Jonah gets himself on a ship and sleeps down in the belly of the ship until the Lord comes and stirs up the waters in this great act of judgment against Jonah and all who are on the ship with him. Now, Jonah in this case, is on a self-imposed exile from the Lord. And he's on this self-imposed exile because of his disobedience. And now the judgment comes upon him and upon all that are on that boat. Now, in this story thus far, we can see the whole story of the Bible. I mean, in some sense, the story of Jonah is the whole story of the Bible. Right? Adam and Eve, too, are exiled and theirs is a self-imposed exile, even though the Lord cast them out from the garden. It is an exile that comes because of their disobedience. And on the other side of that exile, of course, the stormy waters of judgment come. I mean, literally, when we get to Noah, we'll have the stormy waters of judgment. But the, the storm of God's judgment as a metaphor is that which now basically is the story of the rest of the Bible and the rest of creation until Christ comes again. We find ourselves in a storm. And I mean, the, the time that we take before a service to go through prayer requests, Sunday after Sunday, is evidence of this. Is it not evidence of the storm that we find ourselves in? I mean, we're, we're constantly, and, and you hear the language of, of Jonah as the billows come crashing over us one after another after another. And if we could share our stories together, just take time to tell the stories, we would identify with you get through one thing and kaboom, here comes another wave. And you, you think, ah, you take a breath, you get a couple good days, you think things are going well, and boom, something else. And this is the story of our exile from the garden. Like Jonah's, in many ways, initiated because of our disobedience. We refused to honor and obey the Lord, and out we went, and we found ourselves in very, very stormy waters, a storm that really we can't manage, a storm that makes sailors panic for their lives. And Jonah is here with sailors who are used to being on the sea and who are panicking for their lives and don't know what to do. And finally, they come to Jonah and ask him, do you know anything about this? I mean, they sense that this is beyond normal. And they come to Jonah and ask him if he has any idea what's going on. And Jonah knows. Jonah knows what this is about. And Jonah knows what has to be done to deal with it. You're going to have to throw me in the sea. You're going to have to cast me into the judgment. And so they do. They throw him in. And in throwing him in, 
the sea, the storm calms. And Jonah is gulped up by, by this fish and undergoes what to our eyes looks like a death. I mean, when you're swallowed by a fish, I, you know, it seems like death. And even if he doesn't die, of course, it's a picture of death. And the only way to calm that storm is Jonah had to be thrown into the sea. Now, we also know from this, and I've preached on it before, the other side of this, that, that Jesus took his disciples one evening into a storm. And he led them into this storm. And then he, like Jonah, went and fell asleep in the boat. And the storm raged, and the storm was so severe that the, the fishermen, and they weren't all fishermen, the disciples, but many of them were, and the fishermen on the boat were afraid they were going to die. And like the sailors in Jonah's story, they roused up Jesus. And don't ask him if he knows anything about this, but, but certainly you can do something about this. And they're bothered by the fact that Jesus is laying there sleeping while this storm rages. And we know what happens. Jesus rises and like Jonah deals with it. The difference is that in this story, Jesus gets up and he just speaks words. He just says, peace, and the waters come. And perhaps we're left in that story wondering if that's all it takes to calm the waters. Is that all it takes? It's just the words. Maybe, maybe it's that simple. And we know it's not. It's going to take a lot more than just the words peace to calm these waters and to calm this storm. But Jesus is identifying himself in that story and preparing his disciples for the big storm that is about to come. And alerting them to the fact that he is the only one, in fact, that can ultimately calm this storm. Now, this is the way the Bible works. The Bible, we know, and it's in Luke's version of the, of the uh, resurrection, that Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and meets Cleopas and the friend, and they are bemoaning the fact of Jesus' death. And Jesus then asks them why they're so upset and, and then walks them through the whole Old Testament. You know that story. Beginning with Moses and going through the prophets, he showed them how all these things had to happen. The stories of the Old Testament are, if you will, training wheels to teach you to ride the bike. Right? They, they set the story for you so that you get your balance so that when Christ comes, you're able to ride. You're able to see it. You're able to receive the truth that is being proclaimed. And in that way, the story of Jonah does this for us. And even the, the disciples going through that storm on the sea with Jesus does this for them. These were meant to be training wheels because there was going to be a more severe storm. When they go through Good Friday, again, they feel like they're going to die. This is why Peter denies Jesus. They're all locked in the upper room because they're afraid they're going to die now, right? They're, they're in a similar story. They're in the ultimate eye of the storm, right? They're, they're in the big storm now. And the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus, the, the, the time, the experience of being with Jesus in that boat was there to be training wheels for them and not just for them, but also for us through them that we might find our balance in the midst of the storm. Now again, 
for all of us. I mean, for me, I, I said this at uh, when I preached at Westminster. I, I I might be off by one or two, but not by many. I mean, in this in this past calendar year, it's been like 15, 16 funerals or memorial services that I've been to. Where it's just people directly related to me, personal to me, like Evar's and, and Chris's dad and my dad and you know, and and staff at Chapel Field to that kind of one remove, very close relatives of people that I that are very close to me. Um, that's a lot in a year. It's it's been a rough year. But the question is, are we able to be balanced? Are we able to ride through this? Have the training wheels done their work? Are we able to read the story we're in because of the story of Jonah, because of the story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples, and because of the ultimate story in the ultimate storm there on Good Friday and the resurrection and the calming of the storm that comes on Easter Sunday? Have I learned to ride? Am I balanced? Or can I not balance? Because I haven't absorbed the story. I haven't learned. Jesus calms the storm with his disciples in the boat. Their hair's on fire. They think they're going to die. They're completely unbalanced. Completely out of control. And Jesus, with a word, says, peace. And we know, because of the story of Jonah, that it will take much more than a word to calm this storm. It is going to require our Jonah, our righteous Jonah, the Christ, to be thrown into the water. And what we've just come through, as we remembered Good Friday, is Jesus being thrown into the water. Jesus is being thrown into the sea and gulped up by the fish. And this is the only way to calm the storm. What's he doing in there? He's in there because of you. This, this prayer that Jonah prays is the prayer Jesus is praying, not the exact words, but you get the point, there in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus is going to the cross, Jesus is experiencing that. The billows crashing over him, the seaweed wrapping around his head, being dragged down to the moorings of the mountains and the gates and the bars of the earth. He is going to be taken in by death itself. And he's in there, not because he has caused the storm. He's in there because you have caused the storm, and there's only one way to calm it. Even our being thrown into that sea will not calm it. The only way to calm that storm is if he himself, if God in the flesh is thrown into that sea and gulped up by the fish. He is literally the only one who can do it. It's not just so that we don't have to do it, he will do it. We can't do it. If we go in that water, we never come out. If we go in that water, the storm will not calm. The storm will still rage. It will take all eternity for the justice of God to be satisfied. I cannot satisfy it and calm the storm. It will only be the Son of God in the flesh who can go into that water, be gulped up by that fish, and ever come out. And Jonah is just a precursor 
Jonah's not calming the ultimate storm. Jonah is calming the penultimate storm. Jonah's calming a little particular storm that the Lord is using his training wheels. But the big storm can only be calmed by this one. So what's he doing in the fish? What's he doing in the belly of the earth anyway on Holy Saturday? Well, he's there to calm the storm that you can't calm, but that you have caused. Now, how does he get out? How does Jonah get out? Jonah gets out by repenting. Jonah prays this amazing psalm. He, he acknowledges what has happened to him, and then he, at the end, says, he, he rejects those who uh, pursue idols, and then turns it, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed, for salvation is of the Lord. That is, in this little penultimate picture of a storm, Jonah turns. He repents. And in repenting, the Lord tells the fish to vomit him out. There's a turn in Jonah. And again, this is just a picture. This is the training wheels of what is happening in the real fish, in the belly of the grave. For there, Jesus is not so much repenting for us, though he does that too. And interestingly enough, he does that in that story with John the Baptist when he shows up to the water and, and John the Baptist says to him, no, 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 you shouldn't go in there. I'll go in there. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, John, this needs to be done so that the law might be fulfilled. Jesus knows that he must go into the sea. He must go into the river. He must go into death. That's what the Jordan represents throughout sort of Christian symbolism, right? You're crossing over the Jordan, you're crossing over death. The Jordan River represents death. Jesus goes into the Jordan River, into the water, and is submerged. Right? He, he, he goes down into the depths for us. Why? What's happening? What's going on? What's he doing in the water? What's anyone doing in the water there? What is this baptism about that's happening? And the answer is repentance. Repentance. The nation of Israel needs to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But even their repentance, just like Jonah going into the belly of fish, is going to be insufficient. And hence, the Son of God in the flesh shows up so that he might go into the water and be submerged under it for them. And repent, even for Jonah, so that he can come out on the other side and have the blessing of the Lord, the, his Father, bestowed upon him. This, after he goes into the water and out the other side, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And hence, Jesus, when he goes into the belly of the fish after the crucifixion, as we said in our assurance of pardon this morning, goes into the grave, and the only way he gets out of there is because the justice of God is satisfied. That truly the judgment of God has been taken on him and dealt with. If it has not, he's not getting out of the fish. He's not coming up out of the water. He's not coming out of that grave 
unless a true turning has happened, unless the justice of God is satisfied and smiles and asks no more. As the great hymn writer says, and let us love and sing and wonder, justice smiles and asks no more. It's satisfied. That's the only way. Jonah gets out of the fish is there's a turning. And that got him out of his fish. But again, that was the training wheels. The only way Jesus gets out of the ultimate fish in the belly of the grave is that truly God's justice is satisfied. And the only way that happens is if Jesus himself is truly righteous, right to the end, He is faithful, even in his grief, even in his anxiety. My soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, it's for this hour I came. He's sweating drops of blood. He's asking the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And we know that he was sinless and righteous through that all. And the way we know it is he came out of the fish. He was raised for your justification. And here's where... This text in Jonah 2 lets us down, not not because of a deficiency in the text, but because at the end they're training wheels. It can't tell you the whole story. Our text this morning essentially is Jonah 2.10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. But this is not what happened with Jesus. Not just because it literally wasn't a fish and it didn't vomit him out, but because it's not that death loosened its grip on Jesus. And Jesus was able now to come back forth from death. Jesus did not come back from the dead. Jesus conquered death. Jesus did not come back to life. Jesus went through death and out the other side. And that picture can't be given to us here. We get, we get the story of a fish and vomiting him out. Jonah going in and being spit back out so that he can kind of continue on with his journey. Maybe not westward, but eastward this time. But that's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus comes out of the true fish, not because it lets him go, but because it is satisfied. And he, if you will, tears a hole through the backside of the grave. Jesus is not like Lazarus who comes back. Lazarus came back from the dead. Lazarus was dead and now he's alive and then poor Lazarus will have to die again and do it all over again. I'm sure Lazarus was thrilled about that. Not so with Jesus. Jesus does not come back from the dead, but he goes through death, if you will, blowing a hole out the backside of it so that now death for all who are in Christ is not a barrier but a portal. Bringing us now unto glory and bringing us unto new life. So don't be, don't be, don't let the training wheels do more than they're intended to do. This story is to train us to think about what our Lord has done for us, being cast into the depth of the sea, swallowed up by the fish, seaweed wrapped around his head, dragged down to the moorings of the mountains. That having satisfied the judgment of God, he might destroy the fish forever and for all of us who are in him. That death may no longer threaten us. 
So what's he doing in there? He's in there for you. And how did he get out? Because he was righteous and he satisfied the judgment of God. He took your sin, repented for it, bore the judgment it deserved, was consumed under the judgment that you deserve, and then having satisfied it, blew a hole out the backside of it so that death is a portal for you. So the third and final question, what now? And for this, we have to go beyond the text in Jonah chapter 2 into Jonah 3, where Jonah, you'll see the headline in the, uh, you don't even need to read the chapter, Jonah preaches at Nineveh. So what now? Get to work. Get on with it. Live now in this resurrection light. Jonah, you've been delivered from death. Now, go do what you were called to do. Go to Nineveh and preach the word there. And you heard this in our text this morning as Mark read the New Testament text, right? Matthew just combines, he, he tightens it up pretty quickly. You get resurrection, he'll appear in Galilee, he goes there, you get some doubting in there at the time of the ascension. Matthew is, Matthew is rushing, if you will, to the end, and he crunches a bunch of stories that other gospel writers will pull out separately. It's a pretty short resurrection narrative. Goes right from resurrection, right through to ascension and great commission. But that's helpful for us today. Because it brings us to the what now. The so what, if you will, of the resurrection. Go. Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore, go. Go into all nations and make disciples. Just like Jonah, having now come forth from the belly of the fish, needed to go to Nineveh. So, brothers and sisters, you and I, in light of the resurrection, are called to go. And we can take our word of exhortation this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the call that you and I are to have. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we are to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in work. The resurrection now gives us this refreshment to go forth and to live. Not to say, oh, death is conquered, now we don't have to worry about it. Death is conquered, therefore get to work. Death is conquered, therefore go. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jesus, go to all nations and declare it. Paul, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, brothers and sisters, it's time for us to get to work. It's time for us to take obedience seriously, more seriously, not less seriously. More seriously, because we know now we are more than conquerors in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are to be more serious about our, our obedience, for we know that there is no one, nothing that can stand against us. Last year, that's what we spent our time doing on the therefores of the resurrection, was looking at Romans chapter 8 and saying, what does it mean? That there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it meant, let us live in obedience. Let us walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. For who is there that can oppose us? Who can stand against us? What is there that can possibly threaten us? And so this year in our therefores, of the resurrection, we're gonna focus on the going. We're gonna focus on missions. We're gonna focus on evangelism and apologetics. 
taking the gospel out. Let us not run from it. But let us, in excitement over the new life that we have in Christ, go forth into the world and to declare it. We all have loved ones who do not know Christ. We pray for them in here. Because Christ is raised from the dead, let us therefore go. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. He is risen from the dead. He went into the belly of the fish for us, went down to the moorings of the mountains, broke free from it because of his justice and his righteousness on our behalf. And now on the other side of the grave, he commissions us who have been crucified with him and raised with him unto new life to go and to get to work. And so may we be about the business of the kingdom this Easter morning and throughout the rest of this year and throughout the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new life that is ours in Christ. We thank you for our greater Jonah who was thrown into the heart of the sea, not because of what he has done, but because of what we have done. We thank you that the waters have been calmed because of his obedient sacrifice. We thank you that the fish could not hold him, but that he overcame it and made it no longer a threat to us who find ourselves in this sea, but find in the grave now a portal unto glory. And so knowing that and having the peace that comes from it, Father, we pray that you might make us more obedient, make us more faithful servants of yours, we pray, as a church and as individuals, that your name might be glorified in and through us. For we give you thanks and we ask this in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.